Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All righty. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have someone very special, someone that has done a lot for the founder ecosystem. And I'm actually very excited to have him on the show today because he's done this a few times. He's been around the block, and uh, I think that he's going to be able to share with us a lot of insights. And uh, that is Adair Resi, CEO and founder multiple times. He's also the driving force behind the Founder Institute. So, Adeo, welcome today. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Yeah, so we typically, we actually uh, interview founders that have some good stuff to share about, maybe like one transaction, but you've done it all, and you've done it all multiple times, whether that is a fundraising or an acquisition. Uh, how many How many times, I mean, I guess, how many companies have you started and, and, and built from the ground up uh, uh, up until now? You know, there's defining lines of what's a company and what's not a company, but comfortably nine. Uh, and then probably more if you consider different roles or, or different types of structure. But but where I was the founder and deeply involved, uh, nine. Got it. Got it. And I guess a lot of people start businesses and really takes a long time to get them off the ground and, and to really get it to the finish line. But I guess, was it always this really the strategy behind all these companies that you built and sold? Was it, was it really to sell them in your case? Well, uh, I, when I was younger, I thought building and selling was a good idea. Now I, I don't believe in selling as much. I, I think that if you want to build something, you should work on something that you don't want to sell. And in fact, uh, that may lead to you getting offers to sell. And I think if you get offers to sell or you have inklings to sell, uh, if you feel that you're doing the right thing, you probably shouldn't sell. So 100% of every company that you sell will die. Um, it will die in one form or another. Uh, and there's some examples that I've seen of companies that have sold and survived for extended periods of time uh, and even improved. But the they eventually also die. So, for example, you know, I sold a company, I sold two companies for um, what amounted to be approximately a billion dollars when I was younger, um, under the age of 30. And one of them 
survived for quite some time, uh, in excess of 10 years, but eventually it was, it, it died. And so that's quite, quite a long run. But, you know, the second you sell something to someone else, and I bought a lot of companies too. So I've been on the, uh, 25 transactions either on the buy side or sell side. And, you know, the, the, the ensuing entity just eventually goes away. The thing that purchases you may go away. The thing that you sold to them will definitely go away. So if you want to build something that's your legacy, you want to build something meaningful these days, I don't even, I don't think of selling as an option. Got it. Got it. Got it. I mean, you were mentioning under your thirties, you were very active and, and, you know, you did it several times, like for example, doing a nightclub with Elon Musk, or for example, doing a newspaper when you were at school. But I guess when we are thinking about, like, what was that significant exit for you? I believe that was Method 5. So would you mind really talking to us about Method 5? How was the experience for you? Sure. So, um, you know, I had before that I sold a company called Total New York right. uh, to the Tribune Company. And then when it was right. in the Tribune Company, it merged with... Uh, AOL and became AOL Digital Cities. Wow. And, and, and then AOL eventually bought it for just under a billion dollars. So that preceded, uh, the Method 5 days. So in Method 5, we were just one of the many digital agencies in the world. Right. And because I had built a fairly large media company, we, before we specialized in working with fairly large media companies. Pretty much every major media company in the world was relying on us to help them with the digital transformation to the World Wide Web, et cetera. Got it. And the business was growing very well. We were growing uh, something like uh, 30 plus percent month over month, sometimes as high as 100 percent. Wow. And we had 60 percent GNA. So it was a, a business with a lot of kind of expensive overhead yep. um, because we had these very talented people working there that needed assistance and HR support and stuff like that. And, you know, we were charging something like three to $400,000 for what amounted to be about two man weeks worth of work. So it was really just a, a business that was printing money and everyone kept trying to buy us. Uh, right. And we kept saying no. And we're like, nope, no, no. And then finally someone came in and really wrote a ridiculous amount down on a piece. He came in my office, like, I want to buy you. I'm like, ah, we're not for sale. <laughs> so he took a post-it note off my desk and he wrote like a ridiculously high wow. number on it. And it would have been 10 times revenue. We were essentially like a blended product service firm. You can more leaning towards service. Right. And 10x revenue for that type of firm is obnoxious. I still turned it down, though. I was like, nope. Um, he's like, okay, we got to go to lunch. <laughs> and so, uh, or actually, he said, we got to go to breakfast because it was uh, evening. Right. An older gentleman in his 60s. And so, and, and I was in my 20s. I think it was 26 or 7 at the time. Right. And we went to breakfast. And, you know, he's like, what can I do to make you accept this deal? And I was like, in my mind, I was like, there's nothing I can, but like, if I were to accept it, it would look like this, which was like totally obnoxious. And 
probably was like 15 or 20 times revenue. Right. Um, and it would be mainly in cash. And like, it was just, it was so far fetched that, uh, I, I was like, sure, he would say no. Um, but he didn't. He said yes. <laughs> wow. So, uh, that, that put me in a quagmire and I ended up selling. But, you know, still to this day, I think back on that company because it had, one of the best cultures in the entire that I've seen of any company anywhere. Right. Got we, it. we, we had all the modern amenities of lunches and all this stuff back in 1997 and eight. Right. We had, um, teams all around the world, right. That were amazing. And people would migrate between the different offices and we had corporate housing and all this stuff. And, and everybody was really, we had the most diverse management team, you know, a Muslim woman, uh, a homosexual man on the management team that would meet right. multiple times a week. And these are like things that people aspire to today. And this was 1997. And yeah. it was like, so it was a beautiful thing. And, and it did eventually get bought. And, and uh, it was in a reverse merger. And we took the ensuing entity public. Right. And, um, you know, in many ways, I look back and fondly thinking like, wow, that was one of the most special companies I've ever seen. And, you know, I ended up selling it. And talking about special and, you know, what you were saying, the culture and, and all of that. But I think that to a certain degree that is engraved in, in the founding team. So I guess what is the founding team looking like and, and, and what was that team really initially? What, what was that picture? Well, so I, I, I ended that one. I was a solo founder on. So I varied in my career between having co-founders and being a solo founder. Right. And it wavers back and forth based on, you know, mostly negative experiences with either situation. So yeah. the previous company that we had uh, sold to the Tribune company, eventually AOL, and it became AOL Digital Cities, right. I had uh, a team of four people and, you know, they yeah. did some really bad things. They basically stripped, tried to steal all my equity, basically. Wow. And, you know, right to my face. In fact, they literally came to me and they're like, we want to take your equity. And I'm like, what? And, you know, I'd found it. I'd named it. I brought the team together. I'd built it. I'd raised the money. Yeah. And, you know, they had made some really bad decisions and I was young. And so I made some bad decisions as well. You know, I didn't, you know, when you're young, you don't realize that first impressions can last a long time or, or decisions that you do or behaviors that you take can, can burn lasting impressions. Yeah. So, you know, I had, they had done some really dumb things and I had threatened to quit. And the second that I had threatened to quit, and this is just for anyone out there, never threatened to quit, either yeah. quit, or don't threaten to quit, but you know, whatever you yeah. do, don't threaten to quit. And, um, yeah, so I'd lost the credibility with the team and then they use that as a means to try and push me out. Yeah, I hear you. And, and just talking about that, because I feel with the past business that I was leading, which was a co-founders lab, I mean, obviously the co-founder matchmaking was, um, was a big one, but what is your take really on the, on the solo founder versus having a co-founder? Well, you know, I have a, so the Founder Institute 
helps launch between one and 2,000 businesses a year. Right. Within that context, we see somewhere around 10 to 20% of those businesses have, you know, co-founder relationships, sometimes more uh, depending on the year. But, you know, it's not, it's not 50%, right? Um, Yeah. Now people bring the equivalent of co-founders on later, right? So for example, at the Founder Institute itself, I have a co-founder, but he really joined um, quite a bit later. So I'd been two or three years running the Founder Institute as a solo founder. He had been helping as a, a contractor and he really stepped up and helped at a critical juncture and eventually uh, earned the title of co-founder. He was there from the beginning, just not in a co-founder role. So, so my views on it are fairly advanced. Right. And, you know, I've, I've been in every kind of imaginable litigation. I've seen every kind of imaginable litigation and, and et cetera. Yeah. I, I think that, and, and in fact, I have a team of co-founders like sitting outside my door right now working on a project. Uh, right. So, look, you have to be a very strong person to, to be a founder to begin with, right? It takes yeah. a – this is not 100% of the population can go found a technology company in 2018. My best guess is that 2% of humanity have the core characteristics to be successful starting a company yeah, and maybe you can get a third or fourth percentile people who can just overcome their personal setbacks and become a founder despite, you know, having low emotional uh, stress, uh, ability to tolerate uh, stress. Right. So you got to be a really strong person to enter the field anyway. And a co-founder is really someone who fills two functions. First, they buttress you against the, you know, never-ending barrage of stress and and pressure, challenges, et cetera. And and to some extent, you buttress them, right? So this is, they they essentially help you deal with the extremes of starting a company. The other thing that they do and, and this is really a temporary function, is they fill a skill set. And it's not necessarily like, because as a company gets bigger, if you're a programmer and someone else is a marketing person, you know, neither of you will be doing programming or marketing. Right. Right. You may lead teams that do it, um, but you're not going to be filling that functional void. So really... I, rather than just a straight skill match, I'd look like a personality match. So I might be um, more of an uh, introverted engineer that likes to solve problems, and my co-founder might be more of an extroverted business development person. And so as a team in our company, we need some introverted engineering and extroverted business development. So we're going to make that perfect team. So I, I wouldn't necessarily look at it from a skill. Oh, he's an SEO guy. Right. So I need a lot of SEO. So I'm going to make it my co-founder. You know, you you could be a co-founder with someone for like 
the rest of your life, 20 years, 10 years. Yeah. Um, the, how long were you in the company when you exited? Myself? I think it was like six years. Six years. Okay. That's yeah. relatively quick um, to an exit. A lot of times it's taking 10, 15 years. Yeah. You know, until you see an exit. So you could be working with this co-founder for that long. And if you think they're great because they're good at SEO, um, you know, I promise you that in 10 years from now, SEO won't even exist. And certainly not the way that it is today. And yeah. the skill set might have no value to your business. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess now going back into the transaction. So after you sold to AOL, then you moved to Method 5, and then Method 5 also is acquired. And I believe the terms were around 80 million. Is that right? Uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, well, it ended up being much more than that because, uh, of the way they structured the deal with assuming all sorts of, they assumed the option plan, all this stuff. So it ended up being quite a bit over a hundred million. But, but it. really, it wasn't about the price because we we ended up doing it for some cash and and a lot of stock. So I'd come in wanting all cash, but because we were going to and we did do a reverse merger and take it into a, a shell company that we then took public, right? So Got the it. ensuing entity ended up being worth like over a billion dollars, uh, which was pretty awesome. And then it. Go ahead collapse so literally i would watch like two million dollars a day of net worth for oh a long months wow. <laughs> get wiped away and you know it was somewhere between one and two million dollars a day for months of wow. net worth would just be eradicated that, that was fun but i guess looking back then adeo for example from this exit what was your biggest lesson well, that, that, I mean, that was, that exit was challenging in a lot of ways because, you know, I had de the desire to run the ensuing public company and then the public markets collapsed. So that wasn't viable. And it was slated that I was going to run the public company. In fact, that was the plan. Um, right. So, you know, I think that the lesson that I learned is like, yeah, I, I made a lot of money and, and I ended up taking that money. And joining the board of the X Prize, started working on space, you know, working closely with Elon in the, the genesis of SpaceX and all these interesting things came out of that exit. So I certainly don't regret it. But what I did realize is that, you know, when you, you, you when you sell something, it's it's gonna die. And right. you know, no matter what you do. It might live a little bit longer, like the 10 or so years for AOL Digital Cities or less, um, like that entity eventually was crushed by the dot-com collapse. So, you know, somewhere between months and years, uh, but eventually it's going to die. And if you really love it, you, you have to have a, a very conscious decision with yourself about the what the net result will be. And, and by the way, there are things that you can do as an adult leader to elongate and possibly for as long as possible, the health of the ensuing entity so that it might be around 10 or 20 years versus yeah. one or two years. 
right? And, and, you know, now that I'm older, I counsel most of my friends on large M&A transactions. Right. And because I've just done a lot of them, like tw- 25 fairly sizable deals on both sides of the table. Yeah. And then I've seen countless others. So there's a ton of things you can do to get around the escrows and the earnouts and the, the, the lockup periods, right, as an entrepreneur and that are a win-win, right? Yeah. And there's a ton of things that you can do to ensure that the acquirer keeps the entity around in a healthy condition for as long as possible. Yeah. Right. And, and, and if you've built something that you love, right. And that is really valuable, then, you know, you almost have an obligation to ensure that the acquirer keeps it around because I can tell you from, from a lot of experience that unless you proactively think about how to keep the ensuing entity around, it's going to die a fairly quick death. Got it. Makes sense. And just as an example, in a company like Method 5, what was the capital structure all the way to the actual sale of the business? Um, I think I had somewhere between 75 and 80% of the shares at sale. We took a little bit of angel investment, and they made like a 1,000x. Um, it was one of the best angel investments of a lot of people's lives. <laughs> and, and many of them... <laughs> retired on it, which was crazy because I went out to raise money and I went back to these angel investors and I was like, Hey, I'm back. They're like, no, I'm retired. I'm like, you retired on the money that I made you. We're like, what about getting, you know, like, I know why you're retired, but I'd like to, uh, I'd like to dip in. And, and then we had, um, uh, employees who, who, who did rather well on the whole. But it was it was also crazy times back then. So a lot of the employees um, uh, eventually did some some things that led to their uh, some financial struggle because people were like trading on margin and doing some crazy things. As a founder, when you sell your business, take your money and put it away. You know, yeah. I I I still have a lot of the money from that liquidity event, which is now twenty years ago. Because yeah. I socked it away, and yeah. um, you know now I've gone through a divorce and some other things. So so I finally I think you know is gone. Yeah. But you know for for about twenty years I had capital from that acquisition that I had just managed well, invested, etc. Got it, got it. So I mean, nine companies is quite a good amount. So I guess that from that experience and then also from the recommendation that you give to founders that are building hyper growth businesses, what do you typically see in terms of like the average amount of time that one would invest into, for example, the, the fundraising process? Oh, and fundraising? So yeah. it, of yeah. course it depends on the stage. So, you know, the, the longer a company is around, the easier fundraising becomes unless you're really screw up, which does happen. But, you know, it can take you when you're just starting out a solid six to nine months of pounding your head against the wall to raise a measly half million to a million dollars. Right. And then when you're at like a series D, it's like two weeks, some phone calls, couple meetings, and you can raise, 
you know, 50, 100, 200 million dollars. Got right? it. So it really, really depends on the stage. And generally speaking, unless the company's in trouble, but you did say hyper growth, um, yeah. it tends to get exponentially easier per stage. So, you know, the other one that can be a little bit tricky. So, you know, they're, they're bundling between stages where the effort ramps up again. So angel, super angel, seed, by the time you're going out for a seed round, you know, it usually is friends and family, which is easy. First angel round, which is super hard. Maybe a second angel round, much easier. A seed round, easier still. Um, then you're going to jump to like a, a, a series A. When you're going for a series A, it's almost like you're entering a, a new thing, right? It's, it's, it's like a reset button. It's like going from high school to college. Yeah. And so it's much harder. Um, and, and it might take you again another six to nine months to close the series A, maybe even 12, because you're almost like all the things you learned about how to close angels, super angels and seed funds don't apply to series A, uh, investors. They do a vast amount of proper due diligence, which most of the other investors I mentioned before don't. And so just to close the series A fund, you know, if you get them interested and they enter due diligence and you get that due diligence checklist, you know, 90% of founders, if, if they're lucky, have a quarter of it yeah. on hand, right? So the rest of it, it's like resumes of all your employees. And you're like, well, I kind of have resumes, but they're not really, you know, ah. so you got to yeah. go and get everyone's resumes. Then it's like references for all your T-key management team. Like, ah, you know, so, you know, just getting that due diligence checklist together is probably a, a good few months of, of, of work. Got it. Got it. And I guess going back to your story, Adeo, so after the acquisition of Method 5, you are a few years between, obviously, with the acquirer, you were there, and a, and a little bit within... And then you go into starting a consulting firm, and then you went at it again with Game Trust. So, can you describe what you guys were doing at Game Trust? Sure. Well, well, technically, what happened is I was at the acquire for about a year, started um, working on space. So I joined the board of the X Prize, started investing heavily in space. Then I did while doing that, I was doing some venture turnaround, uh, just. You know, because I was interested in acceleration and incubation back then, and I wanted to get my toe in the water. So I just started working with different venture capital firms on their portfolios to see sort of how everything worked a little behind the scenes. And then you're right, went into Game Trust. Game Trust was a fascinating company. We actually made um, the term gamification. Uh, it was it was we made the systems that led to the term gamification being created. Gabe right. Zickerman's a good friend of mine. Uh, we were building these systems. He's like, I was showing them to him one day, and he's like, he named them gamification. So we had built a fairly large. It, 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 the best analogy would be like Zynga. Like, uh, we were like Zynga in 2002 and Zynga didn't really come out to like 2007, 2008. Right. So they were, you know, quite a number of years later. 
Um, they ended up being quite a bit bigger. Um, so lesson learned there, never be the first to market, especially in something like that. But we, we were also fairly big. We had 20 million uh, monthly unique users. And this was back when um, you had to buy all your own servers, wow. right? So, you know, there was no Amazon like, oh, how do we scale? Let's just, you know, give some more money to uh, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> like, no, you literally were like buying servers and putting them in racks at like Rackspace or other providers around the world and like fiber attached storage. So this was not easy to do. Um, and we grew really, really big. And then a, a board war broke out, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so we had raised a $10 million Series B in, it must have been like 2003 or 2004, something like that. Right. And um, the, which was a huge Series B. So the world had crashed in 2000. No one was writing checks anymore. To get a ten million, that would have been the largest financing for a five-year period, mm. and it, at, for that stage, because it was really like a Series A plus today, because we had just done the Series A and we got a ten million dollars Series B offer, and um, kind of a weird thing happened. Like the dirty little stories of the valley are all true. If yeah. you hear something. And you're like, that can't be true. It probably is true. <laughs> so, um, you know, all the bad behavior is definitely true. And like deviousness and everything else. Right. So, right. you know, the sex party stuff is not true, though. But the, all the okay. other stuff, is, all the business stuff is true. Right. So Mike Moretz called the um, investor and told him not to invest. Yeah. And then... I was like, so they yanked the $10 million deal on day of wire. And this is SoftBank, right? Yeah, it was SoftBank. Got it. Eric, Got Eric it. Yeah. And so I was meeting, I, I, I was like in a ripped t-shirt. I pulled over driving an office, got a nice spot, new clothing, put on the new clothing, got back in a cab, went to Eric Capo's office. And I'm like, right. you pull what, what's going on? Like, it's like, yeah. At first, I thought he was going to break out the champagne and celebrate. And then he told me he's not going to invest. And I'm like, what's going on? And he oh goes, oh, God. we have problems with the management, the market, and the model. And this is after maybe six months of due diligence. They, wow. called, they interviewed, like, players. And I'm like, you know, Eric, we've been working six months on diligence here. It's impossible that you suddenly... And I made a joke, like, well, what's next? You don't like my mom, the fourth M? <laughs> and, uh, so then he admitted that, that Mike Moritz had called him and asked him to pull out of the deal because he wanted to buy the company. Mm. So I hopped on a plane, flew out to um, California, and uh, started negotiating. And, and I literally went to the company's offices yeah. and not Mike Moritz's office and who's sitting in the company's office, but Mike Moritz, all the company executives sit down and I start horse trading with Mike Moritz. Now, now Mike made a really generous offer. Um, it would have been, I mean, it, it, it was comfortably in the $200 million range, right? But it would have been like 
probably worth like a billion dollars if some other plans had happened. So it was like a yeah. 200 million, but like billion dollar vet was in sight because they would buy us and do something. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh, that's pretty generous, but you know, sort of fuck you. Right. Because yeah. you're, you, this is not the kind, you know, at least it's generous. Right. At least you're, <laughs> put some lube on before. You know. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I went back to my board and I'm like, well, the deal fell through and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah. And, but, but we got an offer to buy us for a lot of money. So, right. and they just went nuts. Mm-hmm. They literally went nuts. They thought that I had lied or something. They just, they were like, what do you mean the deal fell through? And I tried to explain everything and they're like, I don't believe you. And so that led to absolute chaos. They ended up turning down the offer. Yeah. So they started, they, so my board started trying to negotiate with Mike Moretz. Mm. Mike Moretz then took a disliking to them, um, which is known to happen with him. And then he mandated to uh, clear them out as part of the transaction. That led to absolute chaos and then a bunch of, craziness that I can not even believe ensued and yeah. which led me to start the funded. Cause I was like, these people are all crazy yeah. and someone needs to tell the truth about how crazy these people are because their behavior is unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they all, a lot of the investors in the world, even to this day, lie, cheat and steal. And they have the, the moral compass of a, of a, pet rock right um so they'll say anything do anything to get their way yeah and you know and then i I witnessed this like firsthand because people the amount of crazy negotiation like someone hired elon musk for my board of directors and put their child on my Mm. board (laughs) wow and and i was like look i can help you Anyone is better than your child. <laughs> like, literally, I, like, I don't need to have taken any business school classes. Right. You know, any, any living entity besides your child is better. <laughs> Even a fucking sloth right. should be better than your child for optics purposes. Because that's at least right. cool. I have a sloth on my board. What do you have on your board? Oh, I have my son. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> oh my God. So I guess going to that point then, Adeo, how would you, uh, I don't know, I, like recommend now if founders or the Founder Institute, as they're looking at the corporate governance and the structure of the board, like what kind of recommendations would you give them based on your experience? So, you know, we standardize best practices, which is founder control. And most of the companies around the world now have adopted founder control situations where you have super voting shares. You know, you know, the, the, we have something called a class F stock and derivations of class F are now the norm in America and various places around the world. And we pioneered this concept, which is essentially founder control. Right. So look, uh, the truth of the matter is, as a founder in 2018, and, and as far back as I've been starting companies to 1994, 
you know, the, the, the world is not, um, there to, to prop you up and give you hugs. The world is there often to take whatever it can in whatever way possible from you. Right. right? So you're, you're a target. And so your job as a founder is to establish as much, um, defensive controls and protections as possible to, to ensure that your vision gets achieved in the world. Right. Right. And, you know, uh, the, the more people that you surround yourself with, the greater the, uh, and, and you must like be very conscious of control. Now there's, there's things like control doesn't mean like a dictatorial control. And I want to be clear about this because control can mean that it's, it's a governance system that leads to good outcomes, right? right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you are like in some, you know, king chair being like, now go left and go right. And like, you take that over there. Like that, that's, that's certainly the means of control that's very popular today. Yeah. Right. But that's not necessarily the right way. There, there are other forms of control that are very effective, such as governance schemas, which is why crypto is very popular because crypto at the end of the day is a governance schema. Yeah. There are often a limited number of people that have uh, control in some way uh, over the governance schema, but it empowers people on the sides to to exert a lot of influence and, and change the outcomes. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. I guess uh, just to close the loop there, Adeo, how did the chapter of Game Trust finish? So you did an acquisition. That company got acquired. Is, is that right? Well, we sold it for about $50 million. Um, and, you know, I, because it was so chaotic, I actually lost a million dollars in the deal where, and, and some of our early angels lost some money too. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it was fine though, because it was so bad. And, you know, they did every bad trick in the book, like waterfalling the distributions based on who was last in. So there's some people who made like over a 3X. Yeah. Some people got zero. Wow. Right. And, you know, if you were in different rounds, there would be blended. But, but what, so it ended up being a solid outcome, but it really taught me so many things. That one taught me so many things because most of my exits up until that point had been like so much money that like, you know, losing a little here or there, whatever, right? Like, yeah. Oh, so-and-so gets a million less than, you know, whatever the 75 million he's going to make, whatever. Right. No yeah. one's like, Oh, but in this one, like people were literally like, you know, with knives fighting over <laughs> my like, God. this scrawny chicken. And, uh, what you realize is that, um, you know, you really don't, you really see the, that, that, so the first thing that I learned, especially in those middle case scenarios, is that the cap table means nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It was a completely negotiated outcome. Right. Some people got stuff they didn't deserve. 
and they did, wasn't even, they, they, they would threaten me, right? They would literally threaten me. They'd be like, okay, well, we're not going to vote for it unless we get this, this, and this. Wow. And the buyer's like, I need unanimous votes. Yeah. And I'm like, so then I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, and you know, of course I said no, like 90% of the time, but it's, you know, at some point, you know, you're literally trying to walk the paper over. They're like, no, I'm going to withdraw my my signature unless you do this this and this and that after the last day i mean i literally remember i was about wire the pay wire the money uh or, or, or send the paperwork and get the wire i should say yeah and uh the, the lawyer of one of these uh these criminal investors calls me and is like you know where's my twenty five thousand dollars it has to come out you know i i need, need to get paid you don't pay me and <laughs> so wow. i said okay I am, and this is back when you had desk phones. So I'm like, I'm hanging up my phone and <laughs> walk to the elevator. And when I get in that elevator, um, the deal's off. I'm going downstairs. I'm going to Hawaii. Fuck you. Right. <laughs> and you can call me back and say right. that you're in. Or when I'm in that elevator, Hawaii, here I come. And I just hung up. And I walk to the elevator. I hit the button. And he called me back. He's like, okay, sorry. Forget it. Wow. <laughs> I was like, all right, deal's done. Send it off and, you know, 50 minutes went into different people's hands on a totally negotiated. Wow. And then after that, you went to launch the Funded, which is an amazing website for users to kind of like give ratings and reviews of, of VCs and, and those that are in the process of, of fundraising. I actually, you know, would review different comments on every firm when, you know, back then when I was uh, in the process myself. Uh, but then you went to, to launch the Founder Institute. So for those that are listening that are not familiar with the Founder Institute, what is the Founder Institute? We've, we help people who are thinking to start a company go from what I call zero to one. Zero is you probably have an idea. You may still have a day job. Maybe you quit and got started. One is you have an incorporated with a product team and traction, right? We can get you pretty far along in three and a half months. Uh, it's intensive. It takes about 30 hours a week to do, so you can do it while you're in a day job. But basically, we consolidate about about 12 to 18 months of procrastination and dilly-dally down to about three and a half months. And you come out of it with, again, an incorporated company. The beginnings of a product team and traction, you usually have sold stuff. And we do it through a combination of uh, mentoring, structured assignments of building your business, to build your business, and right. peer support. And then we're in 250 cities. We create anywhere between one and 2,000 new technology businesses a year. Our vision is we empower communities of talented and motivated people to launch impactful and enduring startups. Got it. And it's, it. it's, it's the best, man. I've been, I wouldn't like people want to buy the Founder Institute all the time because we have, we're one of the largest holders of private equity in the world. The business is doing quite well. And, you know, I love running. It's like a dream. So uh, it's one of these things where if you say, like, what would you do with your I couldn't even imagine doing anything else. Right. It doesn't mean it's perfect, right? You know, 
this yeah. is still a business, right? So it has, of course, it's ups down problems, but um, it's it's amazing. That's so fantastic. It's, it's like really helping people to realize their potential on the planet. Yeah. No, absolutely. I follow you guys since the early days when we were building our business, which was also founder driven. So, uh, you know, you guys have done is what you have done is unbelievable. Truly remarkable. So I guess, Adeo, just to close the loop here, if you have to go back in time after all this experience and you were able to speak with your younger self, what advice would you give yourself about the entrepreneurial journey? Uh, it's harder than you think. That's what you would tell yourself? Fantastic. So I guess... I mean, because what am I going to do? I'm trying to do it all again. <laughs> right? I'm that. So I might as well just yeah. be like, you know... The only other thing that I might add to that is like, and, and, you know, when you're in the depth of one of those dark spots, it will get better. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's sort of encompassed in the harder than you think. And, and, you know, I can tell you how, how many times I was sitting on a plane or da, da, da. And I'm like, man, this business is going to go out of business. And like, and like, and then it didn't. <laughs> right? So, you know, well, you know it just, it's, it's the nature of the that makes so much sense. You know, I remember during the bad days, I always told myself that clouds are always temporary. That's a great piece of advice. I mean, as an older person who's been an entrepreneur for most of their adult life, I can safely say that you're going to hit some of these really, really tough spots when you're like, there's no way. And like, Fast forward a year later and, you know, you'll be in a completely different place like it never happened. So to yeah. some extent, patience in the entrepreneurial world is a bit of a virtue. Yeah, absolutely. So, Adia, you've been very generous. So I guess for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can just uh, send uh, send me a tweet at Adeo Resi. Pretty easy. I check it. I'm not the biggest, you know, I check social media about as much as I check email. I sort of have some email things I focus on, but be pretty laser focused on growing the Founder Institute and opening new cities around the world. But yeah, at Adeo Resi on Twitter is probably a great way. This was lovely. Thank you for your time today. Um, and thanks for the, the good questions. I, I wish everyone was as prepared as you for an interview. Amazing. Thank you so much, Adeo. It was lovely to have you on The Dealmaker Show. You've reached the end of another episode of The Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.